Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's Friday the 8th of July. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined as usual by my colleague Ben Worthy. We're here to talk about Boris Johnson's departure as Prime Minister. Or has he gone? Over to you, Ben. Well, we're in this kind of mysterious place where Boris Johnson did resign or at least said he would only stay in office until his successor arrived. We don't know when the successor is going to arrive. Much of the detail is up to the 1922 committee, who are going to meet early um, next week. Um, and as ever with a country without, an, without a written constitution, we're not really sure what's going to happen. Um, the constitution famously, according to Peter Hennessy, is based on the good chaps or good persons thesis, whereby everything that happens, happens because... Um, politicians will behave themselves and um, Boris Johnson has really proved how wrong and misplaced some of these ideas are. So the convention is that if you're a inverted commas caretaker prime minister you will continue to govern but you won't make any kind of long-term spending commitments or any major uh, policy decisions. Um, a bit like and some people have drawn a quite interesting analogy with Stormont um, when Stormont was suspended and kind of government carried on but without making any new major policy decisions. Um, but what exactly that means is very unclear. Um, I found out recently that Theresa May, while she was in the same kind of caretaker mode, actually made the decision to push Britain towards a net zero target for 2050, which is, of course, a huge decision with all sorts of implications. And if there's one thing we do know about Boris Johnson, um, it's that he doesn't normally abide by the rules. So we're in quite an uncertain time and quite a dangerous time in terms of what could happen over the next few months or even until the autumn, which is when Boris Johnson initially said he was going to stay until. So it's not without precedent to have a caretaker prime minister, but I guess the big difference here is that he's remaining without the apparent consent of his uh, own party. And so we saw this in what has to be one of the least gracious uh, resignation speeches we've ever seen in uh, British politics, where he barely acknowledged the legitimacy of the decision taken by his own colleagues, right? He described it as eccentric. So this was what's, I guess, troubling about this, that this was not someone who, um, you know, recognised that he'd re reached the end of the road and um, talked about the good of the country and the good of the party. It, there was a strong populist uh, undertone to what he said, that he had the mandate uh, from voters, that this was a, a kind of incorrect decision. And so that bodes ill for the state of the British Constitution, and we could be in for a troubling few months. So people have suggested that um, perhaps he was staying in office in order to try and push some of his political enemies overboard. I mean, we saw this with Michael Gove. Uh, the rumour is that Gove gave him until 9pm to resign, and he fired Gove at 8.59. Who knows uh, whether that's true. Um, but there's also worries that perhaps he might um, use his remaining months in office, if that's what it turns out to be, uh, to prepare for a lucrative future as an ex-prime minister. But it's certainly not without precedent uh, factually, but a very different context in which we see a very contested caretaker prime minister. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the resignation speech was hugely different to Theresa May's, if you remember that, and of course, covered in a in a very different way by the press as always between uh, male and female prime ministers um but yes i mean exactly what you're saying if there's one thing we know about boris johnson is that he doesn't like abiding by the rules especially when the rules aren't written down and aren't very flexible so i do think we're in for a very difficult time um 
one thing that may be very influential is quite how long the leadership election is going to take. So the timing of that uh, and, and the processes are going to be absolutely crucial. I was struck by John Major's intervention, arguing that this was really dangerous territory because the cabinet had failed to constrain Boris Johnson in the last few days. And so it's even less likely they'll, they'll be able to do so in the future. So I think we're in for a rocky few months ahead. Okay, so it may be premature to talk about the legacy of a politician who's so reluctant to leave office, but let's have a go. Maybe we should start with what Boris Johnson claims as his legacy. And I guess two things stand out. Um, One is his extraordinary victory in the 2019 election. In an age where parliamentary majorities are hard to come by, he had a stunning election result in 2019. And I think this goes to the heart of his claim to have this political mandate. Uh, But, of course, he's lost uh, supporters in droves since then, it would seem. Um, And I guess the second big claim is on Ukraine. And I think here uh, his claims are not baseless. So if we look at UK support uh, for uh, Ukraine, just in terms of uh, military aid, the UK has been the uh, third most generous donor. Um, So it's provided, uh, according to the most recent estimates I've seen, around 3.7 billion euro in military aid. Uh, to Ukraine. That compares to 7.5 uh, billion from the EU and its member states and 24 billion from the United States. So thinking about it in terms of uh, per capita contributions, the UK has been an extraordinary ally to to Ukraine. It's also sent the kind of military hardware that Ukraine actually needs. There's question marks over precisely what the EU is willing to provide um, Ukraine. Um, Let me jump in on the, uh, the general election actually. Of course, he had an influence in the referendum, the Brexit referendum itself. Um, there's there's evidence pointing to the fact that Johnson was one of his his presence on the Leave side was one of the keys to Leave actually winning. One of one of the number of factors that kind of pushed Leave into a victory. 2019, I think, a little bit less so. Uh, he was influential in uh, with his promises to get Brexit done, and he did or at least he was partly responsible for uniting this this coalition between um, traditional conservative voters and the supposed sort of red wall. Um, but this realignment was not created by Boris Johnson. And I think the evidence from Will Jennings and others now points very strongly to the fact that he rode the wave of what appeared to be a realignment, but is now fading away. So he was influential, but not quite as influential um, as some thought. I think his popularity has been hugely overrated and his idea that he's a Heineken politician is, I'd put it this way, vastly overrated. Theresa May began as a more popular Prime Minister. Only at a very small part of his Premiership was he in positive ratings. He's been consistently in uh, negative ratings and it's been falling without stop since the summer of last year, which is actually one of the reasons he's really been Um, removed. And remember, throughout Boris Johnson's career, he has been a bluffer, of course. He bluffs his way through all sorts of problems, just like he bluffed his way through his resignation speech. And we saw him bluffing his way through all the threats um, to his premiership this week. And he's been extraordinarily lucky lucky in his enemies. Remember, one of the main reasons that he won the mayority twice is not because he was hugely popular in Labour London, but it was because he was against Ken Livingstone. And again, in 2019, he was running against somebody who was even less popular, which was Jeremy Corbyn. But I would pause there and remind everybody that Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 came within an ace of the steps of Downing Street. 
Um, so Boris Johnson's success is actually more about his opponents than himself. Yeah, I guess I'd have a different view of 2019 in the sense that there may have been a wave, but the challenge was to ride it. And I think Theresa May was unable to ride that kind of wave and almost certainly would have gone down in flames in that uh, general election. Whereas Johnson, um, I think by uh, projecting himself as a different type of political leader, of course, there was a proroguing of parliament and the sense of, of kind of a ticking clock surrounding um, um, Brexit negotiations, which I think we'll come to in our discussions. There was a sense in which he, I think, energized that um election campaign for good or ill and I think he achieved what many other politicians wouldn't have done. I think Theresa May certainly wouldn't have been able to um, achieve those results in the north of England. Okay, two points to make. Um, Not that I disagree with you, but remember it was Theresa May and not Boris Johnson who captured Mansfield and coming from near Mansfield for a Conservative to take Mansfield is so strange. I can hardly state it. And it was Theresa May's plan that Boris Johnson reused. It was Theresa May's Brexit plan, more or less, that he also reused. And I think it's also to, to point out something we're going to return to, that Boris Johnson's victory was an English victory, very much an English victory. And in the other three nations of the United Kingdom, of course, the general election of 2019 played out very, very differently indeed. And this all plays to a very particular perspective of Boris Johnson as an English politician, another a kind of politician of the United Kingdom. Okay, so let's move towards um, the other side of the balance sheet, so to speak, in terms of Boris Johnson's legacy. Maybe we could start with the pandemic. Johnson sees this as a victory uh, for his premiership. He boasts of the speed of the vaccine rollout, um, though I think that primarily concerned the first uh, dose of that vaccine. But the figures tell a different story, I think. 181,000 people lost their lives in the UK, um, uh, so far as a result of COVID-19. If we look at excess deaths, which is one measure, and we look at it per 100,000 people, it was 226 for the UK, and that compares um, to 166 in France and 153 in Germany. I think there are big question marks over how Johnson handled the pandemic, particularly in those early uncertain weeks where he boasted of shaking hands and he um, seemed to align himself to theories about herd immunity, He seemed to question whether the British people um, would be able to go into a lockdown. There was a lot of British exceptionalism uh, during these early weeks. And okay, all policymakers were on a steep learning curve, but I think history will judge that negatively. I think Johnson was very concerned about the uh, rising economic costs of Brexit. He was particularly reluctant to go into a lockdown for that reason. And we see some uh, fatal hesitation in those early weeks. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'll pick up on uh, a really remarkable report uh, that people haven't really talked about, which is the Health uh, Select Committee and the Science and Technology Committee issued a joint report over lessons learned from COVID. And I think it's a really important report and will probably form the basis for how history will think about COVID. And it was extraordinary and extraordinarily damning. It criticised a groupthink within the British government. It criticised a fatalism. It criticised the failure to lock down on a number of occasions and it criticised the kind of failure to learn lessons from elsewhere. Remember Boris Johnson, I remember watching Boris Johnson's extraordinary press conference on the 12th of March where his main conclusion was that people shouldn't go on cruises. And it was only after the kind of Italian ICU data really started to flow in um, that he changed his mind partly, it said, according uh, because of pressure from Dominic Cummins. Um, it all, the report also concluded that herd immunity was a very real strategy whatever people said afterwards. And his two 
huge failures in in my opinion and firstly the failure to lock down in time not once but three times and also his failure to protect care homes which has now been the subject of a high court proceeding which concluded that there was no safety net and no ring of steel and excess deaths in care homes due to covid seemed to be about 40,000 in the first year and i think this is where the real failures lie i visited the covid-19 memorial um in london recently and um what you find there is a series of hearts um drawn by fam- grieving family members it, it stretches the entire length of the embankment uh, directly opposite uh, uh, the houses of parliament um that's a powerful visual critique of Johnson's claim to have handled this pandemic well. Johnson's premiership may well be remembered for um, a, a fairly turbulent time for the British economy. Now we can question how much Johnson contributed to this, but he leaves, leaves office with an inflation forecast um, in double figures, which is incredible to believe. It's expected to slow down, uh, but that's a fairly heroic assumption, I think, from the Bank of England. Uh, GDP growth, having bounced back uh, quite remarkably from the lockdowns is now slowing down rapidly. So there's some real warning signs over um, the British economy. Now you could argue that this was um, a generic feature of economies after COVID-19. We saw a lot of supply chain problems after rebooting the global economy and this led to inflation. Um, But nevertheless, Johnson's talk of tax cuts and there seems to have been real divisions at the heart of his his, uh, uh, cabinet over this, um, suggests that was the last thing that the British economy needed if it was experiencing inflation um, uh, to this extent. So I think it remains to be seen um, really um, what sort of economy he presided over. Okay, so let's move on to Brexit, which of course is uh, inextricably linked to Johnson's uh, political career. I mean, the great puzzle for me is how this centrist pro-EU mayor of London became a right-wing populist prime minister. I mean, it's an absolutely incredible a personal and political journey. Um, but it's here he, he left his biggest mark on the UK. As you've mentioned earlier, without Johnson, I think Leave might not have won. He made a very, very big difference as a campaigner. Um, without Johnson, to his credit, Brexit negotiations might have gone on and on. They were completely deadlocked and there was no resolution in sight. So I think he would uh, justify the decisions he took as bringing an end to this national misery. And it was certainly a miserable period politically. On the other hand, without Johnson, the UK might have found a deal that did less damage to the UK economy and to the UK's international standing, because he got Brexit done by papering over profound contradictions. Whether he lied to other people or lied to himself is not entirely clear, but he created a deal that um, caused um, significant strain on the UK's own political union, um, and he was never really willing to accept this. Um, And so we see this continuously playing out in the aftermath of the withdrawal agreement and the trade and cooperation agreement, which required customs checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland that Johnson uh, wanted and sold as a remarkable deal and then denied. Um, Not only did he deny the contradictions in this deal, he seemed to be continuously dependent on the EU as a kind of political foil. So he continued to rage against the EU to continue to, just like that Telegraph journalist all those years ago, treat the EU as a bureaucratic behemoth and a political enemy. Um, Very different to what he promised in the early hours after that referendum where nothing really was going to change how how the UK was going to be the EU's greatest friend. 
this was a running sore throughout his premiership where he politicized Brexit at a time when he claimed to have moved on. He didn't get Brexit done in that respect. Brexit was a, a continuous wound in his premiership. I would say that actually he never was a centrist politician. Before he was mayor of London, he wasn't a centrist. And after, he wasn't a centrist. And I'll say that actually being mayor of London was a time when he was pretending to be a centrist. But either side of that, we see a very different set of um, political views. And I think they are, insofar as anything's real, they are the real ones. Um, I think one thing to say is, you know, Brexit is done depending in different ways depending on where you sit in the UK. If you go up to Edinburgh and look how Brexit's doing, inverted commas, or you go to Belfast and look how Brexit is doing, you probably get a very different perspective. And um, We can bandy around figures about what the public think. Uh, a recent YouGov poll, I think uh, a week or so ago, found that 55% of people think Brexit went badly. I think we should take these kind of polls with a pinch of salt. Even more interesting was a poll where people were asked if Brexit was done. And a large number of people didn't think it was done, which is even more interesting. And there is an element in which this was very convenient for Boris Johnson. As uh, we've said before, the EU wanted Brexit finished, but the Conservative governments that Boris Johnson led did not want Brexit finished. They wanted the political conflict parts of it to continue and continue uh, and continue. So I think the final point to remember is that much of the Brexit plan was Theresa May's and not Boris Johnson's. And, you know, lots of the legwork and the hard work was done earlier in terms of the thinking. Of course, the crucial part that was changed by Boris Johnson was around um, Northern Ireland. Right. But if we go back to the Chequers deal, I mean, this was an attempt, albeit framed in very general terms, to minimize the economic costs of, of um Brexit. It was an attempt to be in a customs arrangement, to try and avoid a hard border at all costs. I think it was sincere, if vague in its articulation. Whereas Boris Johnson, um, in a sense, negated the, 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 the kind of pragmatism in that deal and uh, created a, a really problematic form of Brexit that he refused to own. Um, but I completely agree with this idea that it's a kind of type of codependency we see we see between the UK and the EU where Johnson craves that notoriety and that enemy without. Um, it's been a, um, a very, very strange result from someone who claimed to have got Brexit done. So maybe we could finish by talking about the wider constitutional uh, implications of Johnson premiership. Of course, the big question here is whether he's cause or symptom. But what we've seen um, during his time as prime minister is an erosion of those political norms that are so central to um, the UK's um, uncodified constitution. So from proroguing parliament to party gate, there's been a real um, erosion of those um, uh, rules, uh, many of them tacit, to which the UK functions. We see very quickly how this kind of post-truth politics, this sense of denial, these uh, you know obvious breaches of rules that people refuse to live up to, quickly spread to the rest of the political system um, and it leaves the UK with even fewer checks and balances and I've always seen it as a political system that has far few um, checks and balances built into it compared to other political systems. So this is surely deeply worrying and this surely outlives Johnson. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the analogy I keep turning to is Silvio Berlusconi um, and there's a few uh, Italians reflecting with Boris Johnson's demise on Silvio Berlusconi. And one of the things about the Italian system is there are a lot of checks. And Silvio Berlusconi, when he tried to pass laws that helped him personally, push votes through parliament, 
um, which helped can cover things up, was often confronted by both the constitutional court that very quickly ruled them out of order, and indeed the president themselves. It's traditionally the Italian president isn't very powerful, but took a series of actions essentially to block Silvio Berlusconi. Um, those things just simply didn't exist. We were sat around waiting for the Tory party of all organisations to remove the Prime Minister because nothing else actually could. And I think that's a deeply kind of worrying trend. One of the things about uh, Johnson, which also is reflected in Silvio Berlusconi, is the fact that the kind of, the, the way in which he sort of, his behaviour poisoned the system also poisoned those around him too. And there was a, a kind of reverse Midas effect where everything else was eroded, the cabinet, you know, supporters, the media, etc. And we haven't really talked about the media, but the way in which the media kind of allowed and facilitated um, Boris Johnson. If we go over some of his mistakes and failures, if you couldn't possibly imagine uh, Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn um, getting away with any of the things uh, that have happened there. And I think also looking over to Italy and also the United States, the real worrying question is how you come back from this. I mean, the Italian system has been in deep crisis for a long time after Silvio Berlusconi because of the legacy he left. And, and, and that's also the question about British politics. I watched some footage on uh, social media earlier that I assumed to be true. It was a much younger Boris Johnson playing a charity football match and a player looked like he was going to um, nutmeg Johnson and Johnson just ran through him using his considerable bulk uh, to push this player to the ground. And the camera then zoomed in on Johnson who seemed really proud of his um, body charge. He walks away um, smiling. Then the cameras uh, show that the, the player is quite injured and the, uh, Johnson at this point put, put, puts his hands to his head and wonders what he's done. It seemed to me to be a kind of metaphor for the state of the British Constitution. When Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, he appointed himself Minister for the Union. And I wonder whether actually it will be the Union that will really suffer and that maybe Boris Johnson's premiership was actually the last chance to try and hold together the UK. But after kind of three years or so of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, we see all the devolved nations developing very different approaches. Both Brexit and COVID created huge tensions. You may remember the Welsh border closing, the Scottish border closing, partly because of the emergency with the pandemic, of course. But Boris Johnson leaves office with another independence referendum in Scotland on the horizon, which will have all sorts of deep and detailed constitutional consequences, whatever way it happens when it goes to the Supreme Court. We have Sinn Féin, of course, uh, Installment as they have been, but, but but far more powerful, and Wales, which is often overlooked, beginning to develop both a kind of very distinct political outlook. They're experimenting with basic income as of last week, um, but also where interest in a much more federal arrangement, if not independence, has ri risen to, to to figures that we've never seen before. One in three uh, people in Wales are interested in the possibility of either greater federalism or actual independence and that maybe given the kind of slow moving nature in which we talk about the united kingdom could be one of the real legacies of boris johnson thanks for listening stay tuned for more westminster watch if you'd like to learn more about research on politics at birkbeck about birkbeck center for british political life and about the range of undergraduate postgraduate and doctoral programs we offer please visit our website at www.bbk.ac.uk politics